Hello and welcome to episode 336 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 13th of August 2020. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight over internet phone I'm joined by Marsh Davies. Hello. And Alex Wiltshire. Hello. It's rained so the takes may become hot again but maybe it'd be better if they didn't. A question very, to you very both. damp. The damp takes tonight. Hmm. Um, there's a storm coming, and it's full of uh, our opinions. I don't know. I'm trying to make something <laughs> happen with the weather, but it, it's just it's just really fucking hot. It's it's hot now. I had to turn my big fan down just so that it doesn't overwhelm the ghost in my Nvidia thing that makes the sound go away. I don't know how that works. Close both my windows. It's fucking muggy. That's what I'm saying. How sweaty are you both right now? I'm I'm not I'm not that sweaty. I'm not that sweaty. I thought I might be more sweaty based on the uh, previous week, but actually tonight, pretty uh, pretty dry. Pretty dry. Pretty yeah. dry. Mm. I'm glad. I'm glad for you, Alex. I'm a little bit sweaty. Um, the room nice. I'm in, I had to close the door to stop my family from invading the pod, um, and that means it's going to get increasingly muggy in here despite the open window. But it's nice. gonna be it's gonna be fine. Right, because that's not an energizing experience. That's a suppressive experience. So it is. I st- might not be responsive towards the end of this. So you know, mm, let's right. make the best of now. Yeah, because I thought energy-wise, we were we were rocking a real six at the moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and join us, join us, audience, on our journey to two. Um, what, what's happened? Because uh, in the games this week, what what can we talk about news-wise? I, I think there have been some some announcements some yeah reveals. a couple of games announcements turned mm. my head no one announcement and one um uh a trailer turn yeah um of games mm. let's talk about inscription first in inscription okay. from uh, Dan- daniel mullins games daniel mullins done um pony 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 island pony island <laughs> why would i try to in my head i was going to say pony canyon what's pony canyon I don't know, but I do like the escalating way in which you uh, said that name. Pony, 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 pony Canyon. Pony Canyon. <laughs> I remember. It's, I think it's an Ita- it's a it's a Japanese either game or game publisher. That's what that is. Anyway, that's from <clears throat> old research which my brain has misfiled. Anyway, inscription. Um, uh, it, it looks really good. Um, uh, pony uh, Pony Canyon, <laughs> the game. What? Daniel Mullins did last, except for Pony Hex. Island. Pony Island. So he also worked on The Hex, which came out last year, maybe the year before. Um, they both were games that played with the nature of games. So you start playing the games thinking, hey, I know what the kind of game this is. But then uh, they start sort of breaking outside the box and sort of introducing you to the game underneath the game. And then, what, and then messages come through to you. And, you know, they're playing around with it all. What's a game? <laughs> what is it? Um, and this one seems to be doing that as well, except for um, this time uh, it's a much more spooky and much more um, uh, atmospheric than uh, than those the previous games. Um, in that you're in a sort of a 3D space, apparently at a table. That's how it's introduced. Playing cards with a very shadowy character whose face is just about discernible in the dark. Um, but then, evidently from the trailer, things take strange turns. Um, it seems to bring in some ideas of it being an escape room at one point where you get up from mm. the table and 
I do. We're in some sort of hut or a cabin or something, aren't you? It looks cool. It looks weird. It looks nice. Yeah. It's got a bit of CCG and a bit of the room style sort of futzing with the environment in That's elaborate it. ways. Does it? Is it a VR thing? I don't know. Didn't look like it. No, no. Just because it occurred to me that it reminds. I think that's a VR's good vehicle for that kind of thing. Yeah. But um. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and that was a um, good VRicle. 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 What was the other game? What was the other game? Was Atomic Heart uh, had a bunch of uh, gameplay footage um, mm. released. Uh, this is, I don't know how best to describe it, quite system shocky or bioshocky uh, game. First person, explore, adventure, find things, don't be beaten up by a robot game. Yeah. Um, set in Russia. I don't know exactly, I don't know enough about the setting to know if it's like an alt future Russia or like an alt Cold War. But it's in the, um, it's, it exists on the Bioshock Stalker prey axis yeah. of something yeah um and uh i was uh i was it was interesting watching it and it looked like um i think it feels like it hasn't been since prey that there's been one of those games like that sort of um mm. particular structure um heading into a uh form like a a tech an optimistic tech situation that's gotten very <laughs> gribbly and a lot of stuff in here needs beating to death with a pipe or sufficiently abstracted pipe-like smack object. It's a um, it's a stick with a rotating pair of saw blades on it. Yeah, it is in this. Yeah, it's a, it's the sort of evolved the Pokemon evolution of a two by four with a nail in it. Um, <laughs> Where can we take this next? Exactly, um, but I, I don't say that to be dismissive. It's just very much in that genre. The the video you know, begins with the character kind of exploring like a display of lots of kinds of eerie, gawky robots, which look like sort of, they're sort of like if if C-3PO was draped in a wet tarp. Um, oh, you're making a, me hot. <laughs> and had a bit of a paunch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which I, yeah. yeah, which is cool. And then, and then various things happen. And, uh, very striking. Like I think, I think these games, because it's now almost like feels like a known quantity to some extent. It's about like, am I struck by the art style of this? Uh, and I was almost um, lots of white, almost monochrome. These sort of like nasties that leave goo and ichor all over the place, which was kind of pleasing. Yeah. Um, very it's a nice uh, uh, transparent whale. Yeah, as well. so I was gonna, I was gonna talk about the whale as well. Yeah, it seems to be set in a. Um... In a museum of sorts, doesn't mm. it? A museum yeah. to androids or something. Yeah, well, some sort of theme park slash museum. Well, they're always yeah. museums, aren't they, really? Yeah, they're always museums. I think that's honestly <laughs> like... Well, honest, honest to God, I think one of the real challenges is environmental, in, uh, environmental storytelling and like games that rely heavily on it is not becoming a museum is really hard because museums are the you know, environmental storytelling zones of yeah. real life. And so, yeah. you know, that's kind of what they all end up looking like. I think it's one of the... Well, yeah, like is, these games museum, are, but... they're kind of objects of looking at what the past was, which is a museum. Because like, is you know, yeah. in this game, hey, this is what happened here. 
Mm, and yeah, and so you know, usually, and then well, it's normally two layers of that because it's normally like there is a museum that explains the world and what happened here, and then something's happened to the museum. So you need to find out what's happened to the museum that we made to explain what had happened to the other things. Um, but with that, you know, with that in mind, I was um, I was uh, quite intrigued by it. I think the combat looks a bit stiff um, in a way that it tends to in these games. I don't know if that necessarily um, lets it off the hook, but or lets it off the stick with two sword blades attached to it yeah but, it, was, it was a little yeah. bit of a disappointment in the trailer because you the trailer opens and you're holding this fucking hoopy looking gun which is mm. i mean again it kind of looks like a two by four with a bunch of nails in it but mm. one gets the impression <laughs> it might shoot some sort of wonderful electricity uh projectile or something who knows yeah and then uh, and then instead of using that at any point you change change this stick with a saw blade on it and then uh which makes combat on... look quite boring because the first oh, yeah. enemies are these i mean What's your favorite kind of enemy um, to Well, to, Alex, to mine's deal with? the flood from Halo. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like the big flood of creatures uh, best no. or the little ones? Yes, them. Do the little ones, yeah. So, yeah, you'll love this game then because that was, <laughs> that's what we got to see. And, yeah, it was quite frustrating watching this person uh, trying to duel these tiny little kind of horrible sort of vegetable puffball things um, yeah. uh, and missing quite a lot and them somehow surviving being uh pile driven with this stick with great big saw blades on it uh what yeah after seeing watch, the gun i thought mm, mm, okay. watch them slowly beat a robot to death i did like i did like the music i thought that yes. was good and Which i hope is that is actually Mick the music Gordon. it is yeah, yeah. Uh, of of doom fame um, I like the music a lot, and I hope that is actually the music in game because it seemed to be. It seemed to be switching kind of relatively seamlessly into like a combat track and stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if it was like remastered for this gameplay demo mm. or something. Or something about it that didn't sound quite connected to the game world to me, but that might just be my ears. Um, I mean, it's quite. I mean, like inside baseball-y, like to, to speak inside baseball-y, I'd imagine yeah. that the the track was created for the the game that that particular playthrough, but yeah. it's in in a way that it's meant to be working in the game itself. Yeah, because right. it hasn't been finished yet. Yep, and uh, you, you probably want to master it separately. But uh, that was that was great, and I did really like the creature design and animation, um, particularly at the end where there is. A kind of I don't know what you want to call it, like a a Mealworm bad man. Were, a bad werewolf Spider Man made of licorice. Yeah, um, that was a, that was a pretty good fight. Yeah, um, I think that they sort of end the demo by what it looks like deliberately failing a QTE um, in order to be munched, um, and that that was that was striking. I did very much like the the design, quite um, reminiscent of the. The, the the aliens from prey in some extent like a kind of a scary silhouette rather than a definable creature but that's a pretty good way of doing cosmic horror type scribbles in a game where you have to be able to look at them because it kind of expresses some of that indescribability and you can tell it's indescribable because of the thing i just said like 30 seconds ago <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I quite like the voice performances in it as well. I mean, obviously, mm. I don't get a, 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 a full sense of what they're like because they are not in a language I speak, but they came across as being very characterful. You have a sort of grumpy uh, interlocutor who uh, mm. sort of sighs, and, sighs and, and gives you kind of withering replies. 
I mean, that's yeah. something I really admired about it because um, for a game that has this much interest in, you know, English-speaking West, um, for them to have put out a gameplay video fully in Russian, like, that's really good and just makes a statement about a pride from where it comes from and, and its stance and things. That, that, that's a... Uh, that's very rare, basically, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I would, I would happily play it in Russian with subtitles. I think yeah, it had sure. a good yeah. vibe and a good vibe. Shall we talk about games that we've uh, played with our hands and eyes in the last week? Question yeah. mark. How long? Yeah. Has it been? yeah. Okay. Well, Marsh, would you like to kick us off? Why not? Yeah, I've been playing um, Horizon Zero Dawn. Oh, that's out on PC now. Um, it is out on PC, and uh, you guys talked about it plenty, I think, when you... Mm. Tom uh, went, came to, went as far as to record a podcast about it, because he wanted to talk about it that much. Yeah. Indeed, he did a whole lock-in three years like, ago, that was, apparently. Wow. Wow, really? That's, that's, that's how time works. Um, so, but I mean, just go back and listen to that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but do you I, agree with him, is the thing? Well, I, I don't... I, I mean, uh, I don't want really to rehash a lot of the the things he was talking about the larger game, but I would say that I, I wanted to talk about it because it's sort of apposite to play it after our conversation last week about tutorials, uh, which was a question we had sent in. And specifically, uh, the example about tutorials that Tom brought up, he was quoting somebody else. I can't remember who that was, but it was it was sort of about how like extensive tutorialization can actually sort of tamp down the player's willingness to... Um, or even their ability to like engage with the game. And the example he gave was uh, that infamous video of, uh, I forget who it was, some, some fucking poor benighted video game journalist failing to make a jump in Cuphead. Yeah. It was oh, and, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yes, that's, that sounds right. But anyway, so like the, the, the thesis uh, for excusing his behavior uh, which is just fine. I don't. I don't mind him being, you know, failing at the game. Uh, is that up until that point, the game had actually sort of really held the player's hand the whole way and like prompted every interaction, and it it got him into such a state where you know the player wasn't then aware that they had to figure something out by themselves. And I I think often in these situations, the player is is just not un is not only kind of unprepared for that shift in challenge. But also, it sort of becomes a point of resentment. Like, even if they've... I mean, I find, feel mm. this in myself. Even if I've been impatient for a game to sort of let me off the leash. Um, but anyway, it's like <laughs> this, this, this problem of, like, challenge shift is, is mm. just... I mean, it's writ so very large in, in Horizon Zero Dawn, where maybe, like, even the first three, possibly approaching four hours, are made up of very low ingenuity tasks and all it's all like stringently chaperoned with instructive mm. prompts and it's interspersed by a lot of cutscenes. it's feeding you all these little tidbits of tutorialized interaction one after the other and the, the tutorial's fine like it's not doing a bad job of explaining what you need to do it's just that it's making such heavy weather of it over such a long period and then it finally finally sort of it puts you in a high octane situation, rather than sort of just letting you off the leaf, leash completely, it sort of puts you in this boss battle where you need to combine all of this knowledge in a way in which the game has never really required before. Remind me and of like, the situation. It's um, 
it's it's a major it's just like the first sort of major boss battle against i can't remember what the name of the enemy is but it's it's uh, a it's a yeah, bad dino isn't it is it a it's bad a bad, dino? It's a, yes, it's it's a bad dino. Extra bad dino. Yeah, it it's a, a really one? naughty one. It is a it is a big one. Okay. Yeah. And and it's cross. And it's <laughs> <laughs> the worst kind. Um and like it's it's quite I like the I, the combat in Horizon Zero Dawn is quite technical. Mm. I think. It's it's not I went into it expecting to be a, this sort of frictionless action spectacle, and it's not at all, actually. Mm. I don't know that the combat's good, actually. I wouldn't say that, but uh, it's definitely fussy. <laughs> and you need to sort of, like, plan ahead, and you need to lay traps, and then you need to craft things on the fly, like craft extra ammunition on the fly, which is not a verb that makes any sense in the action context in which it's placed, but never mind. And at the same time, uh, you've got to do all the normal sort of like spatial dexterity things that a boss battle demands, you know, of avoiding this agile enemy while it's, you know, while you're gunning at its weak spots. And yet sort of like, like faced with this, even though I was desperate by this point, like clawing at the walls of the game to let me go and do my thing, my reaction was sort of like, oh, <laughs> fuck off, you know, go fuck yourself. I d and I completely recognize that this is a really irrational, totally unfair reaction to have about what is obviously a well-intentioned, well-crafted and very expensive to make experience. But like in my heart of hearts, fuck off. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay, no. and, and I don't know what the, like, I think it's partly the fact I've been forced to be inert for so long that I had this weird kind of uh, yeah. negative reaction to it but i also feel like it was partly sort of it's sort of like it was presented as a, a test before i'd had a chance to exert my own agency like mm. before i'd been able to play or experiment it was just like oh yeah you got to do this thing now and it's i don't know so it's yeah, interesting right. what you said because um because mike's i've from look remind from that reminder of of how I felt about that early part of the game. Um, mm. um, it's interesting your description of what you felt the combat is, because I think that's definitely what you can make the combat, you know, about making traps and getting prepared, and it, you know, and I totally agree that it's a very technical combat, you know, system. But I'd also say that um, I spent 90% of my time playing the game, you know, because it's a big game and I did a lot of fighting the bad dinosaurs. Um, uh, actually doing what I liked, liked to do, which was pinpointing um, with specific weapons, like there's a certain bow that I really liked, which was, you know, quite um, very accurate, pinpointing their weak points, knowing the kind of, knowing exactly which elements to go for and that kind of thing. Basically, I learned my way into enjoying the combat system, but, the, but I remember the, the tutorial um, was it pains to stress about how you should be hiding away in some grass and watching their next move and you need to craft this particular trap for this particular dinosaur and like I never did any of that at all once I was into it I was <laughs> running right at them aggressively you know quite often I'd be they'd, they'd hit me back and I'd be fucking on the run like running trying to taking pot shots behind me and trying to make something good out of the situation that I got myself into but that was fun like it mm. I found it absolutely completely open um the combat system in the end like much more interesting than anything the tutorial taught me and in fact I found the tutorial quite overwhelming because it told me about all these things which I just forgot the names of and how to mm. use and 
or anything about them, but felt a bit stressed out about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, what I'm saying, to be completely clear, is not a criticism of the game at large. Like, sure, no, I'm, I didn't I, take I'm it. I'm sure that. it's fine. Mm. And like, mm. I, 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 when I say I don't know that the combat's good, I don't know that the combat's good because I haven't, I haven't been able to have that experience where I've played enough of it and experimented enough with it to to get kind of familiar with it. But just, I'm, I'm just saying that 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 weird sort of shift between uh, engage non-engagement and then suddenly high level of demand is it produced a very weird and sort of like just petulant <laughs> reaction in me yeah. and even as this was bubbling out of me i knew how stupid it was you know the game is providing me with something fun and i'm i'm just i'm actually resisting that it just doesn't make any <laughs> sense but um i i felt this this feeling before and like what it always makes me think of do you know that orson wells commercial commercial oh, where yeah. he's he's doing a commercial for like paul masson the 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 vintner mm. and uh, he's like ah oh, the french you know uh, but there's, he's, he's obviously shit-faced and he uh, is really resistant to, to anything. And there's a point at which the director sort of says, action. And then Orson just looks like catatonically stupid for a few seconds and then boozily looks around and says, I want to do anything. And, <laughs> and like, <laughs> yes, yeah, I mean, obviously he's part of that is he's boosted himself into Kona, but it's also clear that he really hates the director. And, you know, <laughs> That's that's me. I completely <laughs> identify with that. I'm a I'm a prissy, stupefied snob, resentful of being asked to do even the least thing. And See, uh, the, that's, that's how I play games. The comparison <laughs> I was going to make is cats, the animal cats, because I think there's this phenomenon that I experienced in Horizon Zero Dawn, where you're desperate to be let out of the tutorial, and then it got let out, and it wants to get back in like, immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and because I really liked that game, and I got. Further, I can't remember exactly how much I played, but I didn't. I know when I finishing it. Maybe like thirty hours or something. I played enough into the open world that expands when you you get access to it. This massive open world to feel a sunk cost. That if I do return to it, I should return to it on PlayStation. But I remember absolutely nothing, and therefore I feel like I should start again. But I'm too far in to really relish the idea of doing all that again. Yeah. And I, but I remember very much like enjoying the like i thought i enjoyed the first six seven hours of that game quite a lot and kind of was on the hook for the story um and i really just wanted to play it for the narrative really and the, to see the things and really didn't want the um the optional things but I, I think this is not a new hot take about horizon by any stretch of the imagination but i found myself very kind of overwhelmed by the scope of different things i could or should be doing and little activities from gathering, you know, to hunting smaller creatures and stuff that you feel like you kind of should do when you're told you have the opportunity to do them. That mm. my response was to turn around and scratch at the door to be let back into a relatively linear experience. Like I would rather it continue to tutorialize me till the end of the game, honestly. Like, <laughs> um, and that's, you know, that, that was a very kind of a, a personal thing. But, um, but I think no, I I get the that, other yeah. side of it where it's like, you've the format of your tutorial has taken the form of almost a different kind of game to the extent mm. that you have the dangerous possibility that someone might prefer that um, <laughs> to the game you're actually making um you know you're it's it's and that's a tricky problem to solve when you're tutorializing an open world thing um but i almost wonder if in some cases i suppose this would be the the more arch design point but 
it is fun to discover mechanics and systems by chance and by feel and by intuition. Um, but that doesn't work if the systems are relatively arbitrary uh, because you won't mm. discover them. And the experience Alex described sounds like it's one of the ones of actually kind of knowing the systems are there, not really wanting to memorize them and just making your own fun with the set of interactions that you actually enjoy, yeah. which is fine. Well, yeah, like, you know, I, I think I wouldn't have found all that stuff if I hadn't played it for, I don't know how many hours, like tens of right. hours. You know. but, what, but what I'm saying, I guess the comparison for me is, is like, um, if you begin a, like a, a Bethesda RPG or an Elder Scrolls game or something, um, it doesn't require you to learn how every single system in the game works before you're allowed to pick which one you want to experiment with. There isn't a sequence where it's like, this is magic. Here is, you know, they'll do some small things for like, here's how to sneak or whatever at the start, but you're kind of out of that within 20 minutes. And I think there's a tendency in, in Horizon and also in similar kind of UB format derived, like open world games, which are very dense with often fairly arbitrary mechanics in terms of how you progress or what individual nodes on the map mean that they need to teach you all that stuff because you probably couldn't intuit their purpose otherwise and the example i would give is like you know they'll give you tutorials like go and farm this particular kind of creature because it will give you an upgrade currency using the other this other part of the game and that's not something the player is going to derive for themselves probably so yeah. you need to you need to tell them but telling them is exhausting and so it's a bit of a double bind and i think that's just genuinely the weakness of that kind of yeah. design for me like i think ubisoft have got much better uh at not top loading all of their stuff like i mean if you remember in odyssey the whole mm. um, cultist uh, assassination system unlocks what five ten hours into the game right and, yeah. and and yeah okay maybe that waits too long to deliver what is essentially the backbone of the game but at the same time i think it does a good job of of uh, of splitting up its systems into sort of more manageable, tutorializable chunks. Whereas I feel like <laughs> Horizon Zero Dawn asked me to learn literally everything about the game in the first few hours. Uh, and not, but yeah, not even necessarily the right things, as you say, Alex. Like, I mean, a lot of the, the opening of the game is, uh, so, you know, stealth around these monsters. And then its first test of that is to put you in a boss arena where there is nowhere yeah. to hide. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> I think yeah. I think that's just yeah. It's sort of interesting because these games are immersive worlds, but they're not Sims at all. And I mm. think that's where the I, th I think that's where the disconnect comes from, and where the need to tutorialize comes from, because you can't simply apply your intuition to a situation because you really don't know what the rules are. Um, you know, I I get the sense with with um uh so uh, you know horizon. <laughs> Zero Horizon Dawn. That's it, isn't it? God almighty, no. the name, name. Ah, the French. <laughs> <laughs> the um, I get the sense with that uh, with that game is that I think there's a narrative thing in there. They want you to buy into the idea that she's a, you know, that you're a, you're a kind of hunter gatherer and and you're living this life, you know, this against right. these very terrifying foes. Um, and life, you know, life is always, you know, not, not far from being snuffed out. Um, and I think that is right alongside, um, 
a bunch of Sony marketing people who were desperate to pull out its kind of features in in that tutorial section as well to make sure you know its its identity is sort of fully expressed so that you know you've made your purchase mm. and, and now you feel that the marketing story you've been sold has been kind of fully kind of lived up to that, that, that's like yeah like you know don't let them have their own opinion yet you know mm. <laughs> yeah maybe there's an element of that like i do really like horizon like i mean like it's it's vibe and i think it's like has a atmosphere and a kind of um world design that is genuinely pretty cool and very different yeah. to a lot of things um, I was also trying to convince yeah. uh, Marty that the story is really actually good. Uh, yeah, well, that was the why I was I was basically given it as homework to play for another project um, because the story came highly recommended. I enjoyed the performances. I don't think I got deep enough in the story. I got the intimations of a bigger mystery, but I yeah. didn't uh, didn't get that far into it. Yeah, yeah. What you've been playing, Alex? Um, I mean, it's a bit of a strange choice because it came out. Uh, in a year and a half ago now, coming up to two years ago, um, it's a game called Book of Demons. Um, I don't know why this was in my head to play it. Um, I've been enjoying it, uh, and it's worth talking about. But I don't know quite what led me to like seeking out and um, playing it. Do you, have you heard of it, you two? No, no. It's this. Um, it's like this sort of um, stripped down Diablo-like. I suppose certainly in structure and in a lot of kind of its influences from it as well. Um, uh, so you're going into to, um, to, 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 to dungeons and you are rinsing through all the bad, bad fellas and you're getting to the end and sort of delving deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, but it's got loads of sort of things about it that are kind of really interesting. So it's a, by a, a studio called think, uh, thing trunk, thing trunk. Um, and they, came up with this this series of games that they're kind of in the process of making and this is the first one called return to games and the idea behind them is that um the all of these games are a tribute to a single hit game from you know from game past like there is a bit of text that says that it's from the 90s but then diablo isn't from the 90s oh hang on maybe it is no, diablo is yeah fair enough and then, so yeah. Diablo 2 is early noughties, but pretty early. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, games from the 90s. Um, uh, And um, this is the first one. um, And it's uh, like, I don't know, there's some really smart decisions in it. So, for one thing, um, you don't walk freely um, around the dungeon. You're walking along a path, um, and this path bifurcates and, and sort of joins back up again and you know and you sort of follow these corridors effectively and as you go along monsters are either wandering around or they'll spawn and there are these um barrels around and uh the the interface is click you know you're with the mouse and so you're clicking on uh on things within a certain radius of your character so how far you've walked into the dungeon and how far you are relative to the things you want to interact with is important. So you need to be close, but you can click quite far away um, to attack stuff. You just hold down the mouse button on them and it automatically just attacks. Um, um, you have, uh, um, and, uh, and then you have um, a number of skills and things that you can equip, um, which some of which are active. So you'll press 
a numeral number to make them work and they'll cost you mana usually um, or as or a resource in the case of um, potions um, health potions um, and then there are others that are um, passive, passive skills which augment your attacks and that kind of thing um, so it's a sort of sit back kind of um, uh, game in which you're just sort of exploring the dungeons and and you've got a little tracker uh, towards the top of the screen that tells you uh, that there are like three chests and two bosses in this area. And once you've done that, the route um, opens for you to go down a level. Um, and in between levels, you can go back to town where you can identify new skills that, that, are, that are kind of um, represented by cards. Uh, um, so you can use them, upgrade stuff, blah, 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 blah. You spend your coins and that kind of thing. Um, but like, there's just so many nice little um, features in it. So, um, you you know, you get a little bonus for completely rinsing a level, um, which means kind of picking up every little tiny last coin, picking up, looking at every barrel, doing everything. Um, and then when you do that and like and before you do that and you've basically cleared out the level you get these little twinkly lights like in the in the direction of where you need to walk to, to backtrack to go get them um so it's sort of like oh um here i'll go and back and get them and when you've got them all um the symbol for where the stairs down to the next level are lights up um you know in whichever direction it is relative to where you are you click it and you immediately go down so like little sort of little sort of rewarding mm. um sort of shortcuts to things that so you don't have to do more backtracking than you have to um and it's really deep as well like there are three classes like rogue warrior warrior and mage the um, you get to upgrade your cards kind of um you which kind of and there are magical versions of cards um sort of you know alternate versions basically you can only equip one of each type of card but i've got several cards now where um where i've got multiple versions of it i've got to pick the one i like so you just pick you know it's always good at kind of comparing what you've already got and you know the the skills that you could equip are all sort of nicely complementary so there are these sort of ice uh creatures um whose health uh requires you breaking ice on their little heart sign you know just to, they take more hits basically but i've got a flaming sword and that deals with that situation but then they explode with this sort of um icy blast and if you're in it's within its radius you'll be slowed for a little bit but then i found like this sort of this skill that, that allowed me to get around that so you're just constantly tinkering and equipping and it's like low stress um you can pick the the length of the dungeon sort of sequence you want to go through uh so you can and it even gives you a, a, an estimate of how long it'll take so a short one will be like 10 minutes um a long one will be 45 minutes and like you know you get it just feels so much hey come and sit down you can just click on stuff and <laughs> you can choose for how long and anytime you like you can go back to town and just chill out a bit more and, I, and that just feels like a really sort of like an, an interesting take on what diablo was which is diablo was fucking hardcore like i i mm. played it at the time i played um diablo 2 fairly recently christ it's hard like it's punishing like i was constantly dying having to backtrack to my corpse which is surrounded by stuff that was far too hard for me to kill like yeah um it's sort of a lot of the 
it has very much its own style. And yeah, the visual style is really nice as well. It's presented as paper craft and everything's these sort of stick up little models that sort of bobble along and that kind of thing. It's really simple. Like they've put the investment in this game all in the right places, like the interface, just the flow of things, the sort of little aids that sort of make things, well, flow for yourself really. And that's some, um, and yeah, there's another one other system I was going to mention, which is the mana system, which is really nice as well, where the cards that you equip that, that give you abilities all have a mana cost, whether they are um, passive or not. Um, and that's simply to equip them in your kind of, you know, your action bar, um, which means you've got this, you're making interesting choices about what you're going to equip. Um, uh, and also about how you upgrade, because a lot of the upgrades will actually um, make that ability cost more mana um, simply to um, simply to equip it. Like you've got your mana sitting over to the right-hand side of the screen, um, and that will fill up green with all the stuff that just pay paying for the cost. And then you'll want a bit of mana on top of that to be what you actually spend to, to fire off, you know, the odd um, spell that you might use and that sort of thing. Or you don't equip any of that stuff and just go all spells. You know, it's, it's quite, you know, it's interesting choices. Um, yeah, it's a nice little game. And I, I saw that um, they're currently, like due later this year is a uh, their next game in the series, which is called Hell Card, which is basically, this isn't a 90s game. It's like Slay the Spire. So it's a sort of card game. Um, but um, the monsters that you're attacking, and it looks like it's set in the same sort of dungeon environment world as as, as Book of Demons. Um, the I think the idea of this game is that where the monsters are standing relative to your character in the, you know in the middle of the screen um, is important, and lots of the cards will do damage or move stuff, so it's not within range of you and that kind of thing. So that's a nice you know that looks promising. And then the next one, which apparently they've got planned, is called Book of Aliens, due <laughs> uh, <laughs> next year, and it looks like an XCOM like game again with the same style, but now obviously set in sort of future land. But yeah. So do you mean it's turn-based, the Book of Aliens? Maybe. I don't know anything about it. I've just seen the screenshots. But it's like, you know, I was sort of thinking, oh, this game, like Book of Demons, the first one in this series, this Return to Game series, it's been out for a while now. And are they going to do any more in this kind of highfalutin um, sort of series idea? And yes, they're working on it. Hmm. That sounds very therapeutic. Yeah, hmm. it's very relaxing. And you sort of, it does hold you as well. It's a game where you kind of, oh, I'll, just, I'll just try out that new ability I got. Or I'll just do one more. Oh, there's, yeah, the, oh, there's, there is another one I was going to say, um, another little kind of design detail. Um, when, as you level up and as you do stuff, um, some items such as kind of health, um, permanent health upgrades, permanent mana upgrades, money, um, stuff, um, will go into what the, a cauldron. And this cauldron, just sort of, um, you can access it back in the town. Um, and you have to pay quite a few thousand gold to get your stuff out of it um, so that you can actually use it. Um, if you die, I believe everything in the cauldron is lost. But the longer you leave it in there, like the better the rewards. So it's this kind of nice sort of um, risk reward mm. sort of system. Um, you can just cash out any time you like. But you better believe I haven't. <laughs> a good cauldron, good cauldron cooking. Yeah, nice game. 
Oh, and there's other stuff. It's, oh, I was going to talk about, yeah. <laughs> sort of like there's really weird little details. Two more things, I promise. So one is that um, there are some enemies that, that, that sort of bull rush you and you hear this kind of like sound as they start to charge at you. And if they hit you, you're stunned. And when you're stunned, um, the screen completely blurs out and you get these stars appearing on the screen and they kind of swirl around in a sort of circle and you mouse over, you have to mouse over the stars and then you return like to consciousness and you're able to do stuff like, so there's this weird little um, uh, dexterity um, uh, test, you know, right in the middle of other things. But then Mm. also often your um, abilities, the little card abilities will be dislodged by this thing. So you can't use them or they'll be inactive. So you'll then have to click down in the action bar to kind of write them again. So it's like just another little thing to, to think about as you're doing. And then there are some enemies which are armored, and you deal with armored memories, enemies by, um, you know, not, you click, you just hold down the mouse button over most enemies. These ones, there'll be like a little icon, a sort of little armor icon, and you just move your mouse up to that icon specifically. So you have to target it a bit more closely to take out its um, armor. And so, yeah, like little things, little things. Sounds really nice. I'd be, hmm, do I have space for. I know. I know. Is it cooperable? Mm. No, I don't believe so. No, it's not. Not uh, it isn't. That's sad. There was a. I was wanted to talk about um, Ronimo Games' new game, Blightbound, mm. which is another also a dungeon yeah. uh, hack and slash game. And very um, cooperable. Very cooperable. Um, and I, I've played. I've played one game, and it totally bugged out. This is. It's in very early, early access. Um, um, so I kind of totally sort of forgive its problems, but um, not really ready to talk about it. But yeah, it's really, I I will return to it and talk about it properly. But um, from what I played, the co-op design in it is really interesting, like really good. Like it really makes you play together. I played with strangers and we had to coalesce to work together because the skills, the complementary skills of the classes were so required each other to play, to work together really nicely. Mm-hmm. But that's for another week. Did you know that Ronimo is the first with the first developers I ever visited? No way. Yeah, for Edge, you sent me. Did I? <laughs> did I? Because <laughs> I was yeah, going to say, did. yeah, I knew them quite well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was still what was it to see? Was that awesome? Not early days. Awesome yeah. Nought, but it's interesting because it was it, that was their two D MOBA, and I wasn't even a MOBA player at the time. I was that much of a, a baby child this is almost 10 years ago which is kind of crazy <laughs> think back on i've got two enduring memories of that uh maybe you know, actually it is quite memorable to me uh i had some good chips in utrecht uh the studio was nice it's this like game design uh place in utrecht where lots of different companies went i think vlambeer were there for a while as well mm. and i went to the loo and all the way downstairs like a big shared loo that was shared by multiple studios and uh, a man was having a wee with the cubicle door open and his entire <laughs> bomb was out Wow. <laughs> um, and then it rained a lot and all the, the uh, planes from Sheepole were cancelled and uh, my plane, which was supposed to land in Southampton, landed in Bournemouth instead. And that's that's my Ronimo story. <laughs> that's Saw a good... bum, ended in Bournemouth. <laughs> it's the ideal press trip in many ways. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> That was the the, the sec no maybe the weirdest um, 
flight mishap I've had as a as a journalist. The other was when I went to see Crytek and I fell asleep on the plane coming back from Frankfurt. And then the plane did a lap and came back to Frankfurt and I was on it and I woke up and I didn't understand why I was still in Germany. <laughs> uh, but I was. <laughs> I haven't heard this story before. No. What the hell? So the the plane... How I, did they not just... chirp you off? No, so that it never landed in the UK is the crucial fact. So oh. it, they flew to the UK, but it was so icy. It was December. It was so icy they couldn't land. So they turned the plane around and went back to Frankfurt. Um, oh, yeah. uh, I, I don't know how far they must have gotten. I, like, I literally fell asleep while we were on the tarmac taking off in Frankfurt and woke up the jolt of landing in Frankfurt. And... Um, we were on that. Uh, I was I was seeing Warface, uh, uh, and um, we were like in crisis mode on deadline um, for PC Gamer at the time. And I had to phone Graham or email Graham from the like outside the airport in Frankfurt to be like, "Hi, I'm still I'm still in Frankfurt." When did you and twig was... that you were still in Frankfurt? I think it was. I think it was. There was a moment where it was really clearly not Heathrow, and it was all the German signs. <laughs> <laughs> so you actually managed to get off the plane before realizing you weren't in the country. I can't wait to be home. No, I think I think it was looking at the window of the plane, uh, like right. pulling in, and there's a lot of signage <laughs> that's like, "Well, this is very Frankfurty um, for London." So I don't even segue hard into like my weirdest press trip flight mistakes, but. Um, <laughs> There we go. Uh, that's that's apparently some stories I chose to tell. Good story. Thanks. What have you been playing, Chris? Well, um, I've I've beaten several games. I've been very much in comfort gaming space as well to such an extent, and I won't go on about it because no one wants that. But I just started replaying Dark Souls initially as a co-op exercise, and then just as uh, actually, I find this very comforting, and that's not an experience that I actually had. I appreciate this is going to be very familiar to people, so I won't say much more about it than this. But I just booted the game up, made a character, and apparently that game is like riding a bike. Um uh not in the prepare to die sense, I mean in the um uh in the you don't forget sense. And um um <laughs> and um and it all just sort of came back and it was, it was amazing. Like in about the space of about an hour I'd gotten past the uh gargoyles and rang the first bell and was like on merrily on the way to the depths. Um not really dying, just beating boss after boss because it's so sunk into my brain. The start of that game, particularly, yeah. that it was just very, very comforting. And I appreciate, like, I was never the person who runs that game over and over and over again. So I appreciate this is experience very familiar. But it's it was notable to me that that had gone from being the 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 low hanging flute that you toot when you want to talk about games being uh, hard, and that it has just matured into this very comforting place to go mm. to go explore with very comforting yeah. r- rhythms and repetitions and patterns that are very predictable and that just just feel nice to stab a skeleton in the back um the things i've been playing so uh i have we have a uh, friend of pod paul canavan and i have now beaten call of duty warzone because we finally won a doubles game after six months um, so what 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 is uh doubles how does that That's, It's du- duos, so it's just teams of two, basically. Just um, with the normal yeah. 104 billion people or whatever. Yeah, so it's like 80 teams of two, basically. Yeah. Um, that felt amazing. I was will, I will happy to do that. And I've also, I've also beaten the hot new Battle Royale on the scene, uh, which is the game I should really talk about, Fall Guys. I've managed to, <laughs> I've managed to beat that as well. You so beat all the nice. children. 
Yeah, I did. I got a crown um, by um, taking a while dressed head to toe as a big pigeon. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was extremely, I made a very loud noise, a very loud noise. You know, uh, my skylights have been wide open uh, due to this heat wave and my <sighs> office is in the roof and it overlooks like my, hill, my house is on a hill. Lots of things on a lot of other things. Um, but the net effect of this is I honked yes in such a way that it would have echoed across the basically the entire it. city of Bath. I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, your, your house is probably like maybe three miles from mine, like over the valley. But yeah. honestly, if I if I can't yell across a valley, then I think some at least some of my ancestors are probably like very ashamed. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, that was good. So Fall Guys is obviously like it's interesting because it's the thing right now, and it's. it's it's been this uh, massive success to such an extent that I don't know if I need to really introduce it. Um, it is uh, uh, Takeshi's Castle, Castle Law. It's a knockout as a battle royale game, a kind of hybrid of very with 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 very strong Mario Party DNA, where sixty wibbly little bean men um, rush through a series of obstacle course style challenges and kind of like weird team, you know, like you know, gladiators knockout challenges with one little bean man emerging at the end as um as a winner, Battle Royale style. Um it was announced I think last year at one of the conferences, I think, and then um bubbled away. You know, I was looking forward to it and then it came out and it's I think I think they said that within a couple of days it had sold something like two million copies on Steam alone. And yeah. it's also free this month on PlayStation. So it's player bases absolutely enormous and it's obviously done the thing that a game does every now and then where it just really ignites um something and 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 takes off hugely and it is is really fun like i find myself when i talk about it because it's such a simple thing to express drifting towards wanting to talk more about the marketing than the game because in some ways well to talk about it as a game what's remarkable about it i think is it's a real clarity of vision and I think it's almost most interesting, maybe from a game developer point of view, in terms of like how the hell do you repeat success like that, or how do you predict predict success like that? What it starts with, and I think in a very strong sense, is it's a really clear pitch for a game. Um, yeah. I don't know if I mangled it in terms of explaining it then, because obviously, you know, like Takeshi's Castle is is a touchstone, and so is it's a knockout. But Obstacle Course expresses itself very very straightforwardly. It's very playground energy. Um, and the kind of game show vibe, um, sort of like physics-y platformer game show battle royale is a great idea that, as far as I know, no one had done. Um, and it also, it's one of those great bits of game design where I think as soon as that idea, I would be surprised if it, it feels to me like a situation where someone has one great idea to bring a couple of different things together and then I'm not saying the rest of the game designs itself, but the design just sort of spills out after that. There aren't yeah. probably too many like agonizing conversations about um, game pillars or ideal experiences or like whatever the North Star experiences that everything needs to aim towards. Um, you, you know, it's it's just it kind of it's just all there. Like the identity of the game is very 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 strong, and that lends itself to the game itself, which expresses itself. Um, really well and delivers that thing you know that thing is like it's really nicely presented but the great thing about it is the core of what they're trying to do is not that um it's not that it's not ambitious but like a platformer 
with some physics, with lots of players and an elimination system, isn't a ton of different things to implement. And that means all the extra time can be put into presentation. So it's really nicely animated, feels nice, particularly with the pad. Um, you know, there's tons of cosmetics. The characters are really well designed to express the things they need to express. And clearly a ton of time has been put into making sure that if you fall over, you get back within a reasonable span. Um, and otherwise it's just content to be what it is. And I think that's really interesting because what it is, as particularly as the heir to Mario Party, which I think is one of its most important influences, is like nail-bitingly frustrating and very funny and a lot of fun all at the same time. Like it's it's deeply howlingly unfair in 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 the way that it, it plays out because you can just get completely screwed over by people running next to you, by chance, by your teammates and the team modes. It's so easy to just be out and there's nothing you can do about it uh, in some cases. And, um, and I have seen people get angry on Twitter, like, you know, at the official account or just on their own. You know, this isn't the, like, this isn't, this should be skill-based. Why Why is it possible for me to lose randomly and then to which someone needs to just point at the game and say, what about the wobbly bean man adventure uh, platforming knockabout adventure did you think was Dota? <laughs> um, and and it's not. And and But it does a thing that's often quite brave for any game with a competitive element to do, which is dare players to have fun uh, even when they're losing, which is possible. Um but brings out all of these emotions. People that like to be whacked really hard by a big propeller they didn't see or grabbed by another player and flung into the slime or any of these other things that can happen. Uh, but it's very funny when it does happen. I think there are some rough edges. I think it, they need to do a better job of accounting for the experience of players playing in a party because you don't you don't group up except when you put in one of the team challenges where you are always on the same team, I think. Um, but you... Like it's quite easy, quite hard to tell where your friends are in the race. And like mm. one of its strengths, I think, is it's fun to spectate. So if you do get knocked out, it's kind of fun to watch your friends for the rest of the run. The whole match doesn't take much longer than fifteen minutes. And you, you know, it's as to be honest, often as much fun to be cheering someone along as they continue to run through these mad challenges as it is to do it yourself. That's a strength. That's definitely better than a comparable battle royale, actually, in some ways. But, um all of the systems around um, having some awareness of where your friends are and how they're doing and being able to quickly spectate them, all of that stuff feels really um, underbaked. And the, and the other thing I would say is um, the fact that you can't, if you start to load the next round, you can't quit until not only is it loaded, but the countdown timer has finished and it's begun really sucks. Um, like, and but that's all quality of life stuff. They could they could patch all of that stuff up by just having, you know, an option where as soon as the last person on your little party is eliminated, it pops up a message to say your party's been eliminated. Do you want to go back to the main menu? And you say yes, because or do you want to queue again? Because that's what people want to do. Hmm. I don't think anyone in the history of battle royale has gone like you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to watch the rest of this match. Hmm. Um, but anyway, those are my sort of thoughts about the 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 game itself because there really isn't that much to say it's really funny it's fun it's i play it for it's a good i will play this for 10 minutes um game in the middle of the day when you need a sort of energy break and you can get angry at people for not understanding seesaws for a minute and then <laughs> and then unlock a new hat and feel nice and it's good yeah. 
<laughs> the thing I think is interesting about it is, and and I, I the other thing I would say is, I think it has earned its success. I think it's, I think it is, and the way I would judge that in most cases now is, is it delivering people the experience that they imagine when they see the marketing materials or hear about the game? And the answer is, yep, it's that game. It it absolutely is just that. Yeah. And, but I also think that's really the key to its um, success is. It's got, it exists in the same territory as a lot of physics games do uh, with things like Goat Simulator and other kinds of like mishap games, which is almost a genre. Like, um, mm. was it Surgeon Simulator? Um, right. That, you know, there's that whole span of of games that um, are sort of physics toys and, and sell themselves the GIF well, typically. And... Um, that are great fodder for reaction videos and things like that. And there's some combinatorial kind of recipe going on there where not only is, you know, the, the game, uh, a gif of the game is enough to sell you on the, the action of the game, uh, which is great from just getting people to understand what it is you're making, but also they're very ripe playgrounds for people to make their own content out of, which is honestly the, um, the trick and i think my hot take on all of this and this is possibly only interesting for anyone who is interested in games marketing is i think it's very easy to attribute the success of ball guys to its uh twitter presence and i think and i should say because i don't want to like i think that they they've they've done twitter well and they've they've, they've built an audience and, and it's been very successful very popular um but i think Twitter success for these sorts of games is more often or not symptomatic of qualities that will lead to success elsewhere, not the thing that causes success in and of itself. Yeah, I agree. Fall Guys, like other physics games and other kind of um, knockabout party games, um, because it gifts well, it makes short form content well, because it makes short form, because it comes across well in short form content, it comes across well on Twitter. Therefore, the Twitter does well. And then if you couple that with smart community management, um, and then you, 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 you'll be successful. I think the, the real reason for its success or the reason that particular recipe produces success so reliably is ultimately because it serves the needs of, um, streamers and YouTubers so well that it is, um, like you, you can tell it's an ideal stream game when, streamers are making money streaming themselves watching other people's videos of it um which is a thing that happened at a very high profile level this week and that's just really kind of interesting to me because i think if you are a game developer and you're trying to figure out like what is it about this sort of 20 dollar knockabout um indie uh game that has now you know caused it to suddenly knock fortnite off the top of twitch's most streamed games lists then you have to look to all of that combination of factors. And it is, and it is, I think it's a really interesting example of like a perfect storm of it's highly social in and of itself and that it's a multiplayer thing. It's really communicates itself very um, easily. It also adopts tropes and presentational styles from game shows, which were designed for TV. Mm. <laughs> so that's not an accident when it then streams well. And then all of that coupled with the kind of, I think now standard practice marketing thing of, um, bombing prominent influencers with keys to give away through their streams, that combination of which also worked very well for Valorant, 
that combination of factors is basically like the the success engine. I, I don't want to go bang on about this much more because I appreciate this is like a game developer's view of why this has worked as well as it has. Um, but I do think it's an interesting success case, particularly because I don't think um, I don't think it necessarily comes across as um, cynical at all in having achieved success in that way. It's just, I think, probably the most potent combination of a bunch of different themes in indie development, particularly that we've seen over the last decade, more or less, hmm. um, put together, I think, and almost, and to the game's tremendous credit, into a game that's actually really good. It's not the kind of relative, like, throwaway, um, you know, just for Twitch kind of um or YouTube bait that you sometimes get through the same pipeline. It's a genuinely good expression of it. And that all comes gonna, from having such a cool design. Such a I was going to ask whether you feel that it's got legs. That's an interesting question. I was thinking this myself because they are, the other thing they're doing, they're doing their, their kind of like friendly version of a battle pass where um, it's the, you know, it's a seasonal like level up system, you know, time limited rewards to get. And um but you don't pay for that there are you know there are microtransactions if you want to get you know today's rotation of cosmetics without having to play games but it's all pretty softly softly at the moment i think i think it probably does for this reason so as a project as a product it has oh man i feel like i'm becoming my, my work brain is never going to switch off because I don't leave the house anymore. But as a product, I think it it is modular in a way that will serve it very well. If you think about how other Battle Royales maintain interest, it's usually through a big seasonal update, a map change, and then through the kinds of storytelling that um, Fortnite has advanced, I think, very effectively. Warzone is now imitating, which is... Um, teasing the future of the game through Easter eggs and things in order to almost make the patches themselves these moments that people have to come back and see. It's not just a balance update or a map change. It's an event in the world. And Fortnite has made a huge amount of um, in, huge investment in that. Warzone is now as well. Um, but ultimately, in a game like those, the, chain, the kinds of changes that you see are fairly incremental because there are some fairly complex gameplay loops that have to be preserved at the core of the game um warzone just recently got a train i'm very pro train but you know that's <laughs> like not not mind-blowing i think four guys is an interesting position because it doesn't have a super complex core loop it's run jump dive and grab are your verbs but there are so many different permutations of those things i think it's getting a new map soon or like a new mini game soon um, but I think it would also do tremendously well with like seasonal top-down reinventions of the game. Like I think people will definitely burn out on the current set of challenge levels, but I feel like if they're smart and they clearly are smart, then there's such an opportunity there to like rotate out that entire set and reinvent the game as like something that feels completely different, at which point all 2 million people or those people are coming back. So I hope they keep investing in servers to see the new one. And then, I don't know, do a weekend where you bring back a bunch of the old modes and people who either missed them or are excited to get to try them or people who miss them get to, to, you know, feel nostalgic about it. Like that's, it's quite a potent engine for that. Um, I think there's a certain dev overhead there in terms of just keeping it refreshed. But honestly, 
that feels like a more sustainable pipeline than like a Call of Duty, for example, even though I love that game, I love Warzone, but I don't know how long they can keep adding guns or adding new vehicles or adding new features to the map without seeing some real diminishing returns. Whereas in this, they there's just so much they can do because there's already so much in the game. That's a really interesting analysis. I, I, haven't, I haven't followed the game at all, haven't downloaded it, haven't really, uh, obviously haven't seen anything of it on Twitch or the, all the things you mentioned about how it's uh, built essentially around that sort of TV format. So, you know, at, at first blush, it's not actually a premise that you would guarantee any kind of success to, like a, a $20 game which requires a large player base to be <laughs> to be valid. Mm. I mean, that's that has been in the past disastrous <laughs> for, for, for many right. indie devs. And it's interesting that all the things that you say that have actually, obviously through the, the talent of the developers, managed to get it above, you know, get its head above water and then uh, get ahead of steam. And then I don't know where this metaphor is going, but, you know, keep, um, keep on rolling, the, I guess. Tra- <laughs> the train just bursts out of the ocean and just rolls <laughs> off down the shore. <laughs> um, yeah, and no, I think that, like, I think I think it's in, that's an interesting point, actually. I hadn't really thought of it as, like, ooh, multiplayer $20 indie game, that's dangerous. I think in that case, the other great lesson of it is, like, if you're going to do that, make it as accessible as possible because, like, this is a game that you can play if you can wibble a character around with the left analog stick and press A, right? Mm. Like, and then obviously there's a bit more to it if you want to get used to it, but not a lot more. Like, at no point apparently, so you can jump and dive. You can press A to jump and then X to like dive forwards, which can get you a bit of extra speed, and you can grab things. That's it. And I, I suspect at some point there will have been a conversation like, do we want to add some slightly more finesse movement mechanics to this? And whoever said no made exactly the right decision because there's nothing to, you learn the levels, you don't learn the core game. And that's also a really crucial distinction. It offsets a lot of the learning curve onto the levels themselves. And I think players are more likely, speaking of tutorialization, there's no no tutorialization is necessary. Run, apart from run and jump, you're fine. Everything else is learned through play and play is fun. So people will be happy to do that. And also if their failings come because something kind of random or silly in the level batted them off the side of the level and they fell in the goo and they got eliminated that's probably funny the first time it happens and they're probably going to like that that happened and now they've learned about it and they're probably going to offset the the loss onto the level rather than feeling like the game didn't explain something crucial to them and so it just becomes a very positive experience whereas i think in a lot of you know uh in the multiplayer games it will be someone's desire to i've been this person to i don't know i'm going to build a fighting game system that's unique because I have this idea and I really desperately want to make it happen and I'm going to need to explain it to someone else at some point, but I'm going to make it first. Um, And that's where you end up with people who maybe give it a go, but don't stick around and your player base ends up with just the people who are willing to stick around and that's diminishing group, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It also doesn't have any law and that's a huge strength. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, full guys, it's definitely a thing, and I, I I do think it will stick around. I think I think managed well, it will stick around for a fair while. Hmm. I think we got. Yeah. I think it's a. I don't think it has the competitive chops of a Rocket League, but it it feels like the. You know. The the Rocket League of this summer. I'll put it that way. Yeah. 
Yeah, they, it's I good. think the timing is quite interesting. Sort mm. of, you know, the, our kids are crying out for things to do, you know, and um, a, like a game on the TV that they can share. They've been playing Tricky Towers, which, you know, couch multiplayer, very good for mm. that. Um, this came along and it, you know, they played it, you know, passing the pad between them and arguing a lot, a huge amount um, for about three hours, very happily. <laughs> Wholesome family fun. Exactly. Basically. <laughs> Marsh, have you been playing a different thing? I have. Uh, how, um, how, what's your sweat level? Sweat update for me. Uh, I probably need a towel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all right. Um, okay. I've got a big fan pointing directly in my face. Are you okay for me to witter on about an, another Please. game? We want Witter. that. Are you sure? I just, I'm just going right. to, my, my top's just going to ride up. I hope that's not too much of a, a an update. I'm, I'm wearing like a crop top now. This might be the sexiest <laughs> podcast. <we've ever> <laughs> so the other game I've been playing is There Is No Game, colon, Wrong Dimension, uh, which I think you, <laughs> I, I, you, you may remember there was a jam game called There Is No Game some years ago. Uh, it is mm. a, a considerably upscale remake of that jam game. And the premise of the jam game is essentially that you dismantle the fourth wall of a game uh, that doesn't want you to play it. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, mechanically, it's a point and click game ultimately. Uh, but initially, it's very creative in the way that it asks you to sort of use lateral thinking to essentially vandalize the UI of, of a game. Hmm. Um, uh but in in this in this remake, it does it goes on to spoof specific genres, including literally a point and click adventure game of yore, and I think that's a bit of a mistake <laughs> because it <laughs> because it becomes exactly a point and click adventure game of yore, albeit with like a uh, a meta layer. So I mean, obviously, you still need to combine sort of arbitrary objects as you would in any other point and click game, but they're not actually now constrained to one diegetic plane of the game so it's not just in within the fiction of the game it could be something you're combining in the ui or in some fourth wall breaking abstraction within which the game is operating like a tv set um and uh, i think the game is 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 at its best right at the start when it's in this sort of first flush of of dismantlement because it's really surprising and you're using your ingenuity to sort of like look at the features of this game and its UI and exploit them in novel ways, which are sort of the antithesis of the way that you would normally uh, use them. And it's and and in that in that way, like it's comic, you know. It's it's always you're surprising. You click on things that you don't know that they're going to work together, and suddenly something uh, external to the game suddenly becomes interactive, and uh, and you hmm. pull it apart. And that's that's really fun and, and amusing. But as soon as it becomes this parody of point and click, and you're point and clicking on things in the manner of point and click, you've sort of unveiled <laughs> what the entire game is. And oh, no. there's nothing about it that's then surprising or delighting because it's operating exactly the way you would expect. And when it's when it's spoofing genres which are sort of orthogonal to the way that you actually interact with the game, it's much more successful. But I, I wanted the thing I wanted to talk about really is is. Uh, it's sort of my slight disappointment with the writing in it. Uh, and it's not, it's not that the game itself is actually that bad. I just wanted to use it sort of like a jumping off point to talk about comic writing in games with you guys. I, I think you'd probably have an interesting perspective on this, but I find I sort of initially like the game's mechanically amusing, 
uh, in the way I've described. But the actual, so there's a sort of narrator who is playing the role of the game, trying to stop you playing it. Um, and the actual narrator's interjections by themselves aren't exactly aren't like high comedy it's very the writing in it is very very broad and um it's also incredibly talky so you'll actually find yourself locked out of interaction while the narrator converses mm. with you or other characters and actually I, f- I found some of the 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 insistence of it quite grating and i almost preferred it to be like a, a largely voiceless non-comic game uh non-overtly comic game about surprising interactions like like um who's the guy who does wind windowsill vector park is that the guy Mm. 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 great games Mm. they're all about sort of like twiddling little bits and doing things with knobs and stuff um a bit like the room but less with a horror without a horror vibe and they're kind of again they're just the interactions are delightful and funny because they're unexpected but the writing so i i think a lot of bad comedy writing, and I think this is really, really true in video games, where I feel as an industry, we don't actually have that many, we haven't imported many good writers who are good writers outside of video games. And instead, we've sort of <laughs> hired a lot of people who are professionalized fans of video games, who just are really enthusiastic to be involved in the shaping of those fictions, through no fault of their own. <laughs> but I think... I think a lot of that means that there's a confusion between what is a shtick and what is a joke. And, Mm. and like a lot of the writing doesn't, doesn't, doesn't understand how to construct a joke in a technical sense to deliver something which is surprising or confounding or upsets the initial expectations. And like, I don't want to sound prescriptive about it because there's lots of different kinds of humor, but I, I think a lot of humor comes from, uh, sort of a punchline inverting something that has been previously understood or uh, I, I, I don't know I feel like a lot of would-be writers just replace that with a sort of with the with an elongated setup like an absurd situation that's the shtick and it just sort of compounds like I mean catchphrase comedy is actually the mm. sort of like the 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 level 90 boss monster version of this Um where it's just the same thing uh, over and over again. And in the best versions of catchphrase comedy, that the same thing is being reflected in different ways such that it is new each time. But to use an example from uh, this game, and this game, like... This game isn't like the worst criminal for this stuff. I feel a bit bad uh, going at it for this, but... It's just it just struck me as an exemplar of of a sort of slight f- failing of comedy writing in games in, in the in a broad sense. Um, but there's like an NPC who who refuses to believe that the the narrator exists because the narrator exists outside of his comprehension of the world, mm. and he pretends he can't hear him. And there's there's like something that is a that is a funny setup. It's an absurd setup, and it touches on like just an existential anxiety that the game could use to create comic tension, but it never does anything unexpected with it. Instead, there's like this moment where the NPC forgets himself and responds directly to the narrator. And like, he's called on it and he's, and instead of anything different happening, he just says, Oh, I was just thinking out loud. And it's sort of like, it's, that's almost a joke, <laughs> you know, because there is a moment of tension there. And maybe the fact that he doubles down with an unconvincing claim is in some way low level funny, but it's really just, 
an extension of the shtick. Like that's the character shtick. He doesn't believe in the narrator, and it's just it's just a repetition of it without subversion, without change. And mm. I don't know. I maybe I, was, yeah. I thought about this too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes a lot. Like I think I, I sort of know the sort of thing you mean. I think comedy writing is hard, and mm. I think I, I have a lot of thoughts about this sort of kind of writing dilemma as well. And I don't know how how much of it I can unpack, but to the point of comedy specifically, I think that you end up in an awkward middle ground. I think dialogue-heavy comedy doesn't have to exclusively about this, but often centers around characters or your sense of characters. And um, that can be, you know, there is a style, you know, catchphrase comedy where, you know, characters are sort of, very f- reliable sort of tropes that bounce off each other in familiar and funny ways. But I think that's comedy with a fairly low ceiling. Um, and there's a reason that it's out of fashion, I would say, particularly in something like sitcom writing mm. um, in favor of character comedy that emerges from, from characters directly where the, you know, the, the characters are the ones being funny, not the script that forces them to act in a certain way where Hmm. your amusement comes from the articulation of relationships or something. I think when often the best comedy that is really profoundly relatable about these characters and the situations that they're in rather than, um, rather than being sort of, uh, you know, the comedy comes from, uh, the humanity of the situation rather than the genre trappings of comedy itself. Um, I don't know what you'd put in that bracket. Uh, peep show, let's say peep show. Like, yeah, or the thick where, of it. Like, yeah. or the thick of it, or yes, you know, or um, like succession, where, maybe. Yeah, yeah, where there's um, and even I mean, you know, I like, or even something like, even something with a far less obviously like fictional like story to tell, something like um the the day-to-day which functions as character comedy primarily because the genre that it's sending up is a well-understood com- got like set of tropes that aren't themselves comedy and even even then there's a lot of humanity in how characters are kind of brought to life and they're allowed to have a range of feelings I, I, i'm i'm not talking about day-to-day in its total i'm basically talking about peter o'hanrahan <laughs> <laughs> and, I think, and how how because I, I i watched that again recently and i i love those sketches and one of the reasons i love those sketches is um i've forgotten the name of the actor who plays peter o'hanra o'hanrahan yeah i don't remember either um i he's a theater director now he moves he's, oh, really? he's more of like he's, yeah he's a playwright he's a playwright he's like quite a serious dramaturge in other contexts wow i was just asking um, jim the other day what happened to him as an actor because he's not in I'm comedy gonna, anymore uh pa- patrick marber is his name uh-huh. and he's a you know a well-regarded you know dramatist basically and a comedian but like you know there's dramatist comedian and an artist of spiders amazing exactly exactly and that i think is like absolutely central like so here's the thing the reason that those absurd little sketches are so good is because for Peter O'Hanrahan, the bad journalist, they are also profoundly upsetting. <laughs> and, that's, <laughs> and that's why it's funny. Because it has a bit of the sting of the... Because that, that whole setup is just a fairly verbatim presentation 
of a of a boy who hasn't done his homework being called up on it by a head teacher with a very particular attitude and taken that way the scenes don't have like traditional comedy in them really but you put that in in a like live news situation and it becomes very funny well yeah um, it's the juxtaposition that... which makes it right it's like... right right but it's also something believably kind of human in it as well oh yeah and i think there's a when games are funny a lot of the time they're trying to be funny about games which means that your conversation is not really with a character at that point it's with the developer or the idea of games themselves and the games that can do that well are either as you say kind of wordless so your the conversation does not have a voice except when you give it and you can kind of engage with it i think Stanley Parable walks that line very, very delicately. It's a tightrope walk that it basically pulls off. Mm. Um, or you end up with this, I think, much more didactic kind of putting characters in the game, but not really letting the characters themselves change much or have much of a reaction to what's going on, except to, as you say, reiterate their shtick and to draw it, you know, to almost act as a, a like a buffer to make sure you don't miss the joke. And I think. I think there's something missing. And I think what I may have just done is spend five to 10 minutes re-explaining the thing you said. <laughs> but... <laughs> well, no, I mean, you mentioned Peter Hanran, which is uh, valuable in every right. context. But I try and think about what games are funny that, um, that achieve that from within that context. And I mm. think, like, I think there are games that are funny, but they're funny because the characters in them are funny and because the situation the characters are in are funny and they're funny because those situations would be funny in any other context. They're not about games necessarily. Yeah, Jazz Punk is one yeah. of the only games I can think of which mm. which doesn't do that kind of humour, but does uh, a strictly, you know, quite constructed joke punchline format and successfully. Right, and it's also very sparing on when it wants to explain stuff to you right like or where, where it has a character kind of voice that stuff i think yeah i don't know um i i'm i am the one whose hot take steam train has returned to the ocean um <laughs> and that is funny because it's sad for me <laughs> i was watching um uh frankie boyle's recent stand-up set on uh on bbc recently he talks a bit in that about how well, he sort of does a little bit of unpacking of comedy and uh, he talks a bit about the idea that uh, comedy relies on tension being punctured by the uh, punchline. He says that his punchlines don't work that way. In fact, they don't puncture an existing tension, but they deliver the tension after the fact. Mm. Um, his, mm. his example is, my uncle used to say, do something you love and you never work a day in your life. He did heroin. Which is, you know, <laughs> horrible. But it's also, you know, that's surprising. And like, in, it only takes three words, and he's upset what you understood about the preceding sentence, which is normally mm. this sort of homely, sort of reassuring idiom. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I just, uh, I feel like, just <laughs> learn to write jokes. I guess is the takeaway from this <laughs> right, segment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How's that for a sweltering hot take for yeah. this increasingly warm? Thursday night. Shall we do questions? From questions. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Good. Uh, our first question um, comes from uh, Steph and was sent on my birthday, which is very appropriate because it's regarding one of my 
favourite subjects to wang on about, which you'll be delighted to hear, I'm sure. Um, uh, Steph writes, Dear Crate and Crowbar, I was recently witness to an extensive discussion in a book reading community which opened my eyes to the fact that the romance genre is understood by its readers to have, as one of its most basic features, happy endings for the romantic pair involved, non-happy endings being tragedies or other genres. I witnessed a great deal of heated objection from non-romance readers who equated the romance genre with romance as a theme, and equally heated defense of the genre convention by romance readers. One of the core points romance readers brought up again and again struck me. To them, breaking from this uh, definition of what is and what is not part of the romance genre would be to falsely advertise the experience provided by a book, and would significantly weaken the usefulness of the genre label as a tool for finding and discussing books. This resonated with my experience regarding policing the genre boundaries within games. For example, I wince internally whenever I hear someone describe XCOM or Mario and Rabbids as an RTS, which happens surprisingly often. But while it might be tempting to try and encourage them to explore games that fit more directly under that label, I'm loath to say anything for fear of being one of those people, so I say nothing. But the discussion of genre boundaries in the context of romance has me rethinking things, so I put the question to you. What value might there be in having clear genre definitions or boundaries for discussing media? What would be culturally or socially productive ways of addressing misunderstandings of those boundaries for people who are less familiar with the genre if such a thing is possible? And do you have any private definitional quibbles that throw you off when other people misunderstand or differ on them? Cheers, Steph. It's weird that uh, the uh, romance purists uh, think that having more stringent definition of what romance is would be more helpful to people. Because actually, I think... In terms of like, you know, this is an archaic sort of uh, analogy now, but when you're in like HMV or some kind of record shop and you want to find a thing, it's it's usually good to have quite blurry genres. You know, you, you mm. want to you want to have an idea of where something is and, and you don't need to have like a, a textbook definition memorized in order to be able to find it. I think there's a difference there between the definition of romance, which is quite fuzzy and really not that specific. And it could quite reasonably include all fiction, which is romantic to something like the RTS, which is literally very specific. It's a real time strategy game, whereas XCOM is right. not real time. And uh, aside from that, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'd happily have, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily, to somebody who isn't that familiar with the specifics of these genres, I mean, I think it would be fairer just to class Rabbids and uh, actual real-time strategy games under tactical games, maybe. That's the yeah. genre definition. It's blurrier, it includes more things, and it's actually probably more useful to uh, people in order to find the thing that right. they're interested in. I think you've identified one of the first kind of distinctions that needs to be made in kind of answering this. Um which is that, in yeah, you're right. In the case of games, we talk about genre. In the first case, we're often using genre to describe and categorize particularly technical aspects of what the game is. Um, you know, in very much so when you talk about the kind of traditional genre spread of like first-person shooter, third-person shooter, RTS, turn-based strategy, etc. Um, the you know, and then you get into the kind of the fuzzy zone of sports or something like that. Racing is mm. another perfect example where the genre comes with a whole bunch of expectations uh, that are ultimately quite technical about what you will do in the game. And then we will tend to overlay another genre on top of that. So this is a science fiction RTS, or this is a fantasy turn-based strategy game. 
And that's where things get interestingly fuzzy. And I think one of the things that's going on in this question, which is interesting, is, um, you know, romance. Uh, well, actually, it's interesting because in games, I think we we have this this sense of a of almost everything having at least two genres because you have whatever the kind of technical genre of the game is um, so that you can understand the experience from that point of view. And overlaid on top of that is whatever the kind of aesthetic genre of the game is and that overlays a different set of expectations. And that is where there is far more crossover with other kinds of media. In the literary sense, this is interesting because um, you can still use romance as an aesthetic descriptor, which is kind of maybe what's being opposed here, where if something is romantic, then maybe it should come into that fuzzy bracket of, um, uh, uh, sorry, I've th- thrown myself by saying the phrase fuzzy bracket, which isn't dirty, but feels like it should be. <laughs> um, um, it's a Chuck Tingle novel but, in the waiting there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, um, yeah. Owned yeah. by my own fuzzy bracket. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hurled into the fuzzy bracket is is my new Amazon <laughs> self published um, ebook, um, but uh, where and I think you're right. In some ways, that is helpful to people to say this span of fiction has romantic themes, but we're not going to tell you. You know, that's not going to imply much about the the narrative structure of those books. On the other side, you have communities that want to apply a much more technical specification to how genre functions in fiction. So um, a romance must have a happy ending. And and that, you know, that goes back a long way in terms of, you know, like if more or less comedy was always thought to be a, not to return to that subject, but comedy has such life, at least in the theater as a play that's almost always going to end with a marriage. Um, and um, we've, so much broken away from those rigid definitions of what needs to happen in a story for it to qualify as genre towards, I think, an aesthetic understanding of genre in most cases, that um, it doesn't surprise me that these tensions exist. I don't wholly, well, I do agree with the utility that genre has in terms of saying what kind of experience you're going to get. Um, But personally, I don't know. I suppose there is enormous value in people feeling comfortable that in their chosen genre, they will only ever get a happy ending, for example. But I think this is maybe why genre is such a slippery subject, because that seems to call for a people to resist that and break those rules in the, in order to tell the story they want to tell. And also B inevitably subgenres and subcategorization and further kind of subdivisions of this kind of infinitely subdivisible thing. I think I think with games, genre is a framework, in, in part a framework in which a maker is thinking as well. You know, a set of of mm. of, of rules and, and kind of best practices which are there to be broken or followed, you know, according to their kind of creative sensibility and for good and for ill. But um genre genre in games and also like lots of other media becomes like a shorthand for um intent. Like it is part of an experience of playing or reading or whatever to think about what the intended message or effect is of a thing um and then to compare that with what you're actually experiencing and i think that's that's a sort of a way that genre is also working and and a reason why genre is important Mm. and you know an important part of it i think my my genre quibble not really a definition of quibble more like uh maybe it is actually 
is that I think I think I would like I like to see genre literacy I think particularly when it comes to understanding what makes certain aesthetics happen when it's expressed in games or more commonly in the creation of games or the articulation of what a game is aiming to be because the flip side of that is that games and their worlds and their fictions are assembled through synthesis of cool elements from other things without necessarily a huge awareness of what role those elements played in their original context or in their original genre. Hmm. And I think there's a, a a lot of fuzziness with the way that genre is treated in games a lot of the time. And, and the one that always stands out to me is the kind of, I think sometimes, and I'm not accusing an individual developer of this, but I come across a bunch, a fuzzy understanding of why the where the distinction lies between fantasy and science fiction and where that matters particularly i think um broadly speaking regardless of you know i think probably if you did some great tally you'd probably find humanity has generated a more or less even mix of fantasy games and science fiction games by most definitions but i think in terms of the in terms of genre games trend much harder towards science fiction um, because games like systems and mechanics and, um, you know, science fiction can be a lot of things, but one thing it tends to want to articulate is the relationship between technology, devices, um, science, and humanity. And a lot of video game fantasy does exactly the same thing. We've we've created, I think, particularly as it applies to like magic systems and conceptions of magic, Anyone who works with me will know what I'm, what I'm about to bang on about, but like tend to conceive those things in very rigidly mechanical terms because that suits the needs of the game. And therefore they're considered aesthetically and rigidly, rigidly mechanical terms as well. It's not just video games, it's going back to D and D and things as well. Whereas I think fantasy as a genre is often much more about, um, an, uh, allegory and symbolic meaning. Um, and through video games particularly you see this adaptation of allegory into literal game literalized game effects where a lot of the original purpose of those things or their significance is lost and i think the i'll give an example that i'm kind of pulling out my ass but you might be able to help me out with this much because definitely do your field of expertise as well if you look at like the provenance of magical objects in literature and the significance of things like magic swords or magic rings and the relationship they have with sort of some fairly deep cultural tropes about the value of objects, about gift giving, about inheritance and what objects kind of mean then uh, and their sort of cultural significance and their religious significance. Then in fantasy fiction, those things gain sort of plot power as well and and you know the the ring is literally enchanted and, and that power kind of spills out into the real world through some process of eventual osmosis and i think sometimes sci-fiification that magical ring eventually becomes a like a plus two ring of strength <laughs> and something of that original genre which i would call that a generic trope of fantasy um the symbolic power of objects um and the, the 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 manifestation of that uh has been lost and it's been lost through i think and 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 the value that that brings to a story has also been lost and i think that's something i you know like 
I'd be way into. And I think there are games that manage to reinvest objects with fantasy style meaning, but they're pretty thin on the ground. Does that make sense? Did the thing I just make make sense? I've got a big thermometer next to me. It just ticked up to 30 degrees, which I think <laughs> is now like the, the negative debuff being applied to my like a bit like fa- like faculties at this point. <laughs> there's a there's a concern in the question about gatekeeping and sort of and, and yeah. genre lines, mm. which is like a, a frequent sort of. And I, I think it's important to make a distinction between you know um, people who use uh, the apparent rules of, of genre to keep people out, and though and and the constructive kind of discussion of why uh, genre kind of sort of structures are important and useful mm. and, and valuable. And yeah, I think I wonder whether like, did, did mm. you, how do you, I mean, how do you, Marty, how do you kind of um, keep a distinct line between like keeping it useful and, and keeping oh, it yeah. open? I mean, I, th- I think that so to sort of re-explain uh, what I said incoherently earlier, I think genre solves two problems and they're often at loggerheads with each other genre can be used to define things academically in which case it's useful to have precise meanings or it can be just a help to the consumer in which case i think it's useful to have imprecise meanings and when it comes to something like the roguelike which has uh, a sort of accepted academic definition which is actually fairly specific in terms of the mechanics Hmm. To the consumer, that's no use at all. Um, and in fact, to the consumer, it's much more reasonable to describe things that are like a bit like rogue as roguelikes, <laughs> you know. And I don't have a problem with that. Uh, I feel like the two fields don't really necessarily intersect that much, and academia can go off and have its specific definitions. And for the vast majority of players, it's perfectly fine if you call any old game which makes you feel a bit like rogue as being a roguelike. Yeah, I don't know. I think that, and the, but there's there's like a middle ground which I think like we occupy, like as writers about games. Um, it's a lamentable which is centrist a bit, bit podcast, of, yeah, men. <laughs> bit of a weird, like because because like when I use the word road, like you know, I'm talking to sort of normal people, hopefully, you know, um, about. <laughs> About the kind car of... wash or in McDonald's, just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but about games that um, don't subscribe to the the academic kind of way. But I think it's useful for me to know the academic um, definition, like because you know I, I I feel that we have to kind of operate in both worlds, um, which can often sort of mean. We, like, but which can often mean that that um, we like blade in we that can sense. Feel... You know? <laughs> the take walker. <laughs> but do you, do you not ever feel uh, like I don't know? You, you, it's important to know the stuff. At the same time, it's useful to be I fluent think, with it. Well, like I at think, the same yeah. time, you know. Whereas an academic can perfectly like sit in the kind of you know and argue about the the very strict definitions, and only do that. Yeah, Yeah, that's part of the problem with academia sometimes, right? Like, it's, well, no, that's a bit glib. What I mean is, I think the reason it's useful, like, the reason it's good for us to have an understanding of where people might be coming from 
with their diverse usages of any given genre label is so that we can pass what they mean. Um, because like any other piece of language, a genre label is only useful to the extent that it helps someone articulate an idea and be understood mm. by a different person. And the fact of the matter is with a lot of these um, genre titles, even including something technically wrong, like causing a turn-based strategy game in RTS, the chances are if you reach deep inside yourself, that fuzzy genre boundary already exists and you already understand what they mean. Um, and there is no danger of a kind of catastrophic misunderstanding that would actually result from keeping them out of that particular definition. Actually, that's um, that's how my uncle died. It's, uh, <laughs> just a misunderstanding about which was an RTS and what was what was a Rabbids game. <laughs> I'm so sorry, man. Yeah, well, that's rough. I almost went back to the. I almost did a, the Frankie Boyle callback, but I don't think I have it in me. It's too warm. Um, the. I'm sorry. Sorry, <laughs> that's all right. Oh. Um, so words, yeah, <laughs> words, they got, they mean things, but they mean things by consensus of language communities. And that means that things kind of inevitably change. And one of the most unwinnable battles you can fight is to stand in front of that particular train as it surges out of the ocean <laughs> and shout, no, get back in the sea, ocean train. You won't spread your mixed metaphor nonsense up in my language. I refuse you. I didn't get hit by the train. And, um, you, you know, it was, there was no point doing that, was there? You've just, you've just made a fool of yourself on mm. a beach in front of a big wet train. That's exactly what they said at my uncle's funeral. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a bit callous of the pastor, to be honest, but, you know. <laughs> Shall we move on to another question? Yeah, yeah. sure. Uh, choo choo. Um, this is also about genre. You'll be pleased to know. Peter writes, "Hi, folks. I was reading the PC Gamer interview with Arcane founder Raphael Colantonio, who's working on a new isometric RPG, and he says that it's not a first, not the first person perspective that defines an immersive sim, but its values. Any game can be an immersive sim." He says, "That's a quote. I didn't pronounce the quote marks." Um. I have long thought about the differences offered by both perspectives, and while I have enjoyed many third-person games, none can come close to the emotion offered by being in the eyes of the character. I appreciate that there, there are many things to go into an immersive sim. That's going to an immersive sim. I forgot how to read. But for you, how important is first person? And bonus questions on this subject. Immersive sims often don't sell particularly well. Do you think the first person might come into this? What beloved RPG would you love to see rendered from a new point of view? All the best, Peter. Hmm. Sort of the same question, in a weird way. It is, basically, yeah. I mean, Raph's right, because he should be, because he's been active in the genre for fucking decades. But Mm. um, I think, like, I think a lot of people, like, I think the the name as Mersif Sim is is uh, misleading because, like, it's not about immersion. Although immersion is definitely an effect these games have, like the Mm. the uh, the the academic kind of. Uh, distinction for the immersive sim would be a game about interlocking systems and you know simulating you know and how they interact with each other kinda but it's definitely immersion is not is not the defining aspect no but immersion is the goal of those systems that's why they're not space chem so no no 
because I mean, like, I think that they they're happy for you to be occupying a kind of mechanical kind of out of game experience. Like, I think it's about it, it's about those systems creating choice filled situations um, mm. about using uh, systems in interesting and creative ways um, right. to create uh, to, for for effect. Like that's that is interesting because exactly I both agree with you and don't on the basis that I think the other way of saying this would be that yes, you're creating choice filled situations, but that describes a vast breadth of game types. And what I think would maybe get closer to an immersive sim is to say, um, within the context of a world where you feel like your actions have direct consequences. Um, because sure. like, you know, we, you can say, you know, it's about creating a situation with many, you know, axes of, of choice or consequences that spill out from interlocking systems, but that describes crusader Kings. And, uh, well, I think, I think part of what Raph is saying is that sort of like, well, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> well, right. But this is where we end. This is like, so here's the thing. How do we make this useful? Because if that's the case, it's no longer helping to identify an experience that I might want as a player. If I say, I like to play an immersive sim and you give me a copy of Crusader Kings, then we're in territory where it's quite likely that's not what I asked for. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not guaranteed. Yeah. I might still like the game, but it's probably not what I meant. I don't it's think definitely I going into, but I think it's going into what I was saying before about like developer intent. So like the developers of every immersive sim you've played they're not thinking about how can we put you in New York? How can we put you in, uh, you know, a sort of Victorian city? Like they're thinking, what, how can we make you have lots of, you know, interesting choices and for you to fuck around with stuff in the way that mm. you want and give you loads of freedom. And by the way, we also need to make a really exciting, interesting world. And I think of, like there is a, a side effect of all these games that they are, they are immersive. But I think I've spoke. I've spoken to quite a few immersive sim um, de designers, developers, who have kind of s sort of went. Yeah, I don't. I don't like the name, the word, the phrase. It's terrible. Uh, I mean, immersive sim. <laughs> our confusion over what it means is exactly <laughs> why it's a bad phrase to use. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I right. agree. But I agree with you though, Chris. Like you know, that's not what's going on in the moment of the player, and it's not useful for describing their experience and, and the yeah. thing that they're looking for. And I find that interesting because I think in this particular case, I think, yeah, it's fair to say that with that definition of like what an immersive sim is, then, then absolutely the first person is first person perspective isn't necessary. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably fair to say first person perspectives tend to make things more immersive. Yeah. And so, and so, and I think along the way, I think by the process of accident you've just described, it suits the goals of those developers uh, who want players to treat this, their sandbox that they're creating in a certain way to pursue immersive aesthetics in order to get people to cons you know to consider the world as yeah buy um, into having it a certain, buy into yeah. it buy into the agency of the characters involved if you're investing in ai you want the characters to appear believable so that the player believes they have sophisticated ai that probably means humans it probably means a believable world suddenly you're in new york or you're in dunwall or something because the moment you invest time in game mechanics that rely on intelligence seeming ai you need a world that those ai would inhabit and that's where the world building side of it comes in and it's so also a physics element as well like it's sort of supporting that like is you know it's difficult to yeah. perceive physics 
when from a kind of third person view it's not just that games don't presuppose gravity so if you want a physics based you know set of mechanics in your game you need to tell the player hey this is a world that has a lot of the same rules as the world that you live in yeah, yeah. um in terms of how objects will react to each other and how pe- and then typically you know ai needs to be readable by the player and that means that the objectives of the ai can't be totally alien to you which is the reason like why in alien isolation the alien despite not having eyes looks for you with its head because players mm. understand how to read that mm. in that scenario as well you start building more and more in of the the tropes of the you know you, you you have to find ways to signal to the player this world isn't so different to yours therefore you can expect certain behaviors to work in order to get them to interact with that system and by the time you've done that you like i think it's a, it's, a, it's such an interesting hair to split because it's at one point yeah technically you could take all of that stuff away and still do a lot of the well from a developer point of view you would absolutely be doing the design work of an immersive sim but from a player experience point of view, I'm not sure you would be. And that's where I get, it's kind of interesting. Like, that's where my disagreement comes from. Because I think, like, if you make that sandbox, but then you don't do this, what, what feels like the kind of inevitable additional work of creating a world that supports that sandbox and explains it to the player and all the immersive, usually immersive uh, aesthetics that come in to, to achieve that then how playable would that game actually be and if it and how how many players are going to understand what's required of them are we going to end up with six hours to tutorials because nothing reads naturally from the environment and if you're in that situation then surely that stuff is part of the genre at that point because they they are solutions that come hand in hand with the mechanics but at the same time i kind of understand why a designer wouldn't necessarily think of it that way because that is like supporting systems to allow the design, the, the pure design to exist. I don't know. It's interesting, but I don't think it's as cut and dry as it's, you, you can just remove all of that stuff and you'd still end up with something that was recognizably an immersive sim. Has anybody who's come to games in the last 10 years ever even thought of the words immersive sim? That's true. I suspect no. <laughs> I think I think right. it's a term forged... <laughs> In the uh, in the belly of early to mid, oh, what two thousand eight? Let's say. Oh, it's earlier than that. Yeah, but when let's it really say. picked up its prominence, and lots of other games were right. emerging with that it's sort of in the heyday of immersive sims. Yeah, yeah, and I think mm. maybe that was it's also its last hurrah. In the, I don't know that there was much talk about prey being an immersive sim outside of maybe three press outlets you know outside of the electronic old men who won't stop saying it (laughs) (laughs) but that's to its credit Um, though because we've just identified this sort of genre as being sort of notoriously uh like hard to define misunderstood um and kind of poison to um to the market (laughs) (laughs) right right but i think there's well also yeah one reason i think this is a really interesting subject because like, I, I agree with you, actually. I don't think that term means what it used to mean. But these games continually find new audiences that are very passionate about them. What's really notable about the success of Dishonored, for example, is that it reached a much broader audience than I think its designers were expecting. Yeah. Um, you know, those designers were very rooted in, you know, they would have, I think, have thought of themselves as making a, I'm not going to speak for them, but like making an immersive sim, given its heritage. And suddenly, 
they found a game that reached uh, a kind of fandom that certainly Deus Ex never did or System Shock never did, um, specifically because of its themes, the verisimilitude of its world, and the breadth of characters that it represented in it, i.e. because of its immersive qualities. And it's not a surprise that then subsequent Dishonored games leaned just as hard into that because they were important. And, you know, like, I think that's... And I and I don't think we have a and this is the funny thing. We don't really have a word for that kind of game. Like we need a word for a game that kind of really draws people into a story and a world and the characters who live there and they really care about that and also gives them sufficient uh, freedom to play with a set of interrelated kind of quite detailed interactive realistic gameplay systems to make them uh, feel like they have a lot of agency in the world and that their participation matters and that those characters have even more life than if they were presented in a different medium. So it's essentially both immersive and somewhat of a simulation. Uh, and there's no descriptor we have for this. Duct hunt. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it wasn't really. That was, at best, a very mediocre pun. No, I mean, we. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> Sorry, Alex, I didn't mean to like tell you, because I appreciate that you have done a ton more direct research on this, but it just strikes me that that word means something, I think, still, maybe. Yeah, it's difficult. I think the best thing about genre is that it is mutable and it changes, and that's the interesting thing about yeah. it. And it's cool. <laughs> In conclusion, it's all right. It's cool. Yeah. It's cool. Here's what I'd say. I just reckon the future of that genre is owed just as much to its immersive qualities as its simulatory ones. Absolutely, like, definitely, in, yeah. in my view. But whether that qualifies as a genre definition or means something to people making them, I don't know. I'm just a train. <laughs> What's the next stop, Chris? Boop, boop. Uh, it's, uh, if you're pleased, it's uh, just about why things are bad sometimes. Travis writes... <laughs> Hello. This evening, after putting my kids to bed, I tried to wake my computer. It did not wake. I was surprised. This computer has been fairly reliable for years. I did the usual wiggling of computer bits and turning things off and on. It seems okay right now, but I fully expect it to freeze at any moment and ruin my day. What is your favourite story of computers randomly failing for no goddamn reason because they're all hateful pieces of shit? <laughs> Cheers. It's Travis. Uh, this is a dangerous question because we could all go on at even yeah. greater length about very boring things that we've all experienced. Yeah. And then I pressed the button and it didn't work again. <laughs> Fucking awful though. There is something about there is something about the feeling that one gets from suddenly not being able to trust the thing. You know, the thing that you've yeah. invested in. The one something you know, like for us it's sort of part of our kind of actual living um, and in fact, most people now working from home. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people like, work it, on computers it's now, Alex. It's kind of their living. Well, but it's their one, right? You know, that's the distinction. Yeah. yeah. And there's this feeling that I I kind of recognize, which like it's wretched. Suddenly, it's it's a feeling that it has turned on you, that it has just it's there. It's been crouching there underneath my desk, and it's been hating me all that time. And I didn't realise, and now it's mm. all it's all showing its face. Done your best work, have you? Well, you won't see that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my PC is in this heat, started to fall fall on fall over when it gets very hot, particularly when playing a game, and that means it's on its way out. And I've realised that 
I don't have the the patience to for triage. You know, mm. it's <laughs> what it, what has happened. Like I don't I don't have the same relationship with it, and I begrudge it. I just understand that it's getting old, and uh, you know, this PC is probably about four years old at this point, and I was already kind of vaguely aware that maybe it would be a good idea to get a new one at some point, and it would be a new one, not an upgrade, because replace the motherboard, etc. And I think that happening, that first like full seizing up needing to be, you know, shut down completely and left to cool down for a bit moment was like, yep, your clock just started ticking, buddy. Mm. Like you're going to go to the cupboard under the stairs where the other old computers live until I harvest their hard drives, you know? (laughs) Partially I mutilated. I mean, I mean it's, 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 you know, I, I, well, it depends. How, like, it's interesting. Maybe this is the other way to spin this up. How do you anthropomorphize your best friend slash computer? Because apparently, for me, it's like I've now got this quite. I feel quite sad because it, it's going to go away. You know, it's it, you know, it's going to need to be retired because it started to to fail, and that makes me feel like a kind of insensitive horse owner. Um. Whereas Alex, your description made that sound much more adversarial, um, more like a kind of malignant, uh, you know, force that cowers at your feet until it's finally ready to take you down. I didn't realise it was cowering. I thought we had a partnership, but now I realise it isn't. No. It never was. You're merely sitting in its shadow as it holds the cudgel above your head. (laughs) Mine mine used to be um, uh, Owen's. Oh, in oh, really? hills, mm. yeah, and um, it, but it's it, the all the only bit that remains of the computer that he gave me originally that he bought, or like I bought off him, um, is the case. Everything else is rechanged. So, uh, I'm assuming that like the either it has the spirits that whatever machine spirit that Owen put on, put in it all that year, all those years ago, and that would be a mischievous spirit. It would be a mischievous spirit. And that would probably be a nice thing, like when it crashes for no reason, then that's, you know. But what I actually think is that I've introduced some sort of malignant uh, presence oh, no. in one of the new components I put in over the years. But of course, yeah, is it like, is it going to be a matter of triage to find it and purge mm. it? See, it was very important to me when I got this PC that I just got it from a manufacturer, like a, you know, a, a PC building shop company. That's a word. You know what I mean? A shop company. Uh, a shop company. And they built it for me and then delivered it and then it worked. And it's not because I can't build a PC because I can, but I don't want to. Crucially, that's a really crucial thing to understand. I don't want to. And and particularly one of the reasons I didn't want to was because when it started to fail after three or four years, it was out of warranty. I didn't want to know that it was my job to fix it. You know, <laughs> like, I think, I think I've got more of a kind of... Um, boss employee relationship with this pc as a result uh, rather than a kind of parent child relationship um and so that allows me to make it go live in the cupboard under the stairs because uh that's the reality of late capitalism that's all <laughs> that was a that was a that was a hot silence there i was thinking so, yeah. ah I gotta react. My brain is reacting, but my voice isn't. I'm hot. <laughs> Good podcast. <laughs> Have all your thoughts been replaced with "I'm hot"? <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm very sweaty now. I w- I would have actually undressed, but my clothes have literally stuck to me, preventing this. 
Yeah, I was thinking about trying to become completely shirtless, but I'd have to remove my wireless headphones in order to do that. And I couldn't do that without missing a single second of your uh, each of your lovely voices. So I've remained lamentably clothed mm. through this entire endeavor. Lamentably clothed. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Um, but that is all of the questions that we have received this week. If you would like to um, express your own hot thoughts in our direction, you can do so by emailing us the questions at creightoncrowbar.com. We've also got a Twitter, it's at creightoncrowbar. We have a website, creightoncrowbar.com, which is where you'll find various kinds of show notes, but also crucially a link to our Discord channel, whereby you may hang out with community that, that is nice. That's 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 all I gotta say about that. We have YouTube, youtube.com forward slash create and crowbar. I can actually feel the uh momentum leaving my body like through my eyes. Um uh youtube.com forward slash create and crowbar you'll find uh among episodes and other kind of spin-offy things. Um well it's actually just them. I there was gonna be an end there by the resident have one. Patreon.com fucking hell. <laughs> Patreon.com oh, it's coming. It's coming. Not yet, Mr. Train. Just a few more minutes. Let me stay a few more minutes before you return me to the ocean. I was the train earlier, but now I am the man on the beach telling the train to leave. But I am on the train. Can you and the tra of trains? And on the side of the train it says patreon.com forward slash create and crowbar thank you to all of our patreon backers and as ever sorry if you'd like to find out more about the patreon that's where it is it, it's it's there i think i've said all of the things i have to say put me in the um, sea put me in just kind train roll down the beach uh and crush me into the ocean <laughs> uh i've i've been chris thurston i've been marsh davis and i've been alex Wiltshire. Choo choo. Nice. choo choo oh choo choo everyone <laughs>